The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa, and welcome to Business is Boring. People are very good at pattern matching. They see examples of what, say, a successful business person looks like, and then they find more of those to back. But when systems entrench power and opportunity, pattern matching gets broken, and you end up where we are now, where 80% of VC-backed companies are run by men. The answer to this problem is to change the system, And that's what today's guest is working to do. Jenny Rudd is an investor, founder and mentor who works to create more opportunity for founders that don't fit the old patterns. She's worked with Shio, Teresa Gatting, Startmate and on the board of Enterprise Angels to change the face of investment following a successful career in trading and media entrepreneurship. She's now become a co-founder again with new software platform Dispute Buddy and she joins us now to talk the journey. Tanakwe, thank you for being here. Jenny Rudd. <laughs> Hi, Simon. It's so funny saying hello to each other when we've already been talking. <laughs> <laughs> You're giving out the secrets of behind the, the scenes of podcast land. Hey, so um, tell me about your journey into um, business. And starting first with being a trader, what, what was that environment like? And um, yeah, what was it like being the first woman trader on the floor? Um. Well, your first bit was, what was it like? I think lots of people say, is it like the movie Wolf of Wall Street? And that would be a hard yes. So it was very loose, very wild. It was sort of a cross between being in a boy's dormitory at a public school in Britain and... Yeah, and, and and lots of money and lots of loose morals sort of floating around. It was really, really, really good fun. I mean, so the way I'd got into it was I'd been to university. I studied economics at university. And when I came out, I sort of really had no idea what I wanted to do. And actually... And, and actually, one of my friends had applied for this job as sports bear betting trader at Sporting Index. I just went with him um, down to London to go and apply for this job. And I just decided to apply at the same time. I didn't really want the job. But I ended up getting it. Um, as I think there was about 20 young men all applied and me and I got the job. Um, when I got onto the trading floor, I became very keenly aware that I was the only woman there. I think there were about... I think the trading floor was about 20, 20 or 30 of us. By the time I left, about five or six years later, there was, there was maybe 50 of us. And I was still the only woman there. And I think they probably got one afterwards. But um, it was really interesting. Boys altogether do not act like half boys and half girls do. Similarly, all girls don't act like... You know, we all act differently if there's no, no other gender in the mix. Um, 
there was probably quite a reasonable amount of drugs and sex and and booze and everything. Uh, yeah. I don't know how much I can say on a podcast. It's reasonable, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> Let me just say that that's, you, you come out with zero transferable skills. Is what you come out with. You can do sums really, really quickly and probably not a lot else. And funnily enough, if I sort of go roll right back to the beginning and think like, well, why did I get in there in the first place? My environment when I grew up was um, my dad was a fighter jet pilot in the Air Force and my mum was a teacher, so they were both state-employed. And we basically sort of travelled around the world with my uh, family and they kind of got posted between every one and three years to different places around the world. So my brother and I you kind of move around between all these Air Force bases. On, and on an Air Force base, you in your house you don't own any furniture or anything. So every house that you move to around the world, it's got the same furniture, it's got the same style houses, the same streets, the same everything. You just move and you've, I think we had our own cutlery, maybe, I'm not sure, no beds, nothing. So I grew up in quite a, probably quite institutionalized way. And then in between that, I went to boarding school in England. So went up from when I was very young. So really structured environments. Up, I don't think I even lived on a street until I was about 18 like a civilian street. So I, I popped out into the world and then I went straight to university and I thought that was like representative of the real world, which it clearly isn't. I went to university in Cambridge in the UK, Cambridge Poly, not the university. And so that was my first like experience of living amongst normal people, civilians on streets and things. So, it, and then, you know, at university, it's a fairly closeted environment as well. I went to France and I did a degree in France as well in Commerce Exterieur, but um, in Clermont-Ferrand, which was awesome. But by the time I popped out at the end of university, so I was in my mid-twenties, I still had no real understanding of anything vaguely commercial. I mean, even on an RAF base, if you want to buy food, you go to the NAFI and it's the same shop everywhere around the world in every place. You there's no real understanding of commerce, like growth of value and exchange of value. So even when I left university in my mid-20s, then I went to Sporting Index. That kind of wasn't really the real world either. And then when I left there, I, I decided to go traveling. And um, and I, funnily enough, I, I'd gone to... Um, I'd gone to watch Whale Rider on Kensington High Street in the cinema with my best friend Helen Childs. And we went, ah, oh, that, that looks cool. New Zealand looks quite nice. Look, they got whales and stuff. Should we... Should we go? And so that's how, I, that's how I decided. So I kind of put New Zealand into my itinerary for traveling. And Childsy, uh, she was the she was um, a political affairs person. She helped lobby governments at the time. And um, she decided to take a month off work and come out and meet me. And so that's what we did. That's the first time I came to New Zealand. And I, and I ended up like a few things happened in between, but I ended up living here. <laughs> That's so. And when you say about um, you know growing up in that kind of institutionalized public service life and um, not really knowing commerce, that's that's something that's been a bit of a theme of the pod actually. Is like I I, I grew up in a family with two teachers and no kind of an, an interest in commerce, and um, I had this view that that business and all of those worlds were incredibly grey, incredibly rules-bound, incredibly straight, and not fun or creative or interesting at all. And it's taken, it took years of being in business to kind of shake that. That's really interesting that that's how you saw it. And I wonder, do you have that perspective? Did you have that perspective when you were young, or do you retrospectively have that thought? 
No, but no, I didn't want to go and I thought, I thought studying marketing was, you know, soulless and all of this kind of stuff. <laughs> well, I don't know if I even thought that because I was having such a ball when I was a child. Like, I'm really close to my family. We went, like, you know, when you live, move to all these airport spaces, you have such an amazing time. You're constantly going on holiday. We were climbing Mount Kinabalu, the tallest mountain in Southeast Asia. So my parents' idea of, like, a Rudd family holiday is to, like, climb a massive mountain, like, go sailing across oceans. So we had a really exciting, outdoorsy, global life. And then when I came home, um, well, I say home, when I went back to uh, to school each term time, I had this massive pool of amazing women, young people that I was growing up with. Um, And actually, uh, ambition was big like in my young life we I don't know if I really knew what business was but I knew what ambition was I was surrounded by you know 1200 amazing young women my headmistress was a woman Margaret Thatcher was running the country my boarding house you know was run by two women who were looking after 60 young girls as far as I was concerned like girls really did kind of like rule the world that I lived in and I remember talking a lot about ambition when I was young but I had real I had no understanding of what that looked like like I didn't really understand about walking into a job or anything. My dad, I I made a bit of a mess of my A-levels and my dad um, helped me to apply through something called clearing in England where it's basically all the people that have failed get to go and apply for all of the places that are left on the university courses. And this one particular course had just been built in the t- uh, so no one had had a chance to apply for it and I got the opportunity to go on it so it's this economics course I was like the fuck is economics I don't know what that is anyway my dad is like I think you'll like it and I was like oh, I don't know anyway even though we had a very kind of uh, institutionalized life when we were young we had a huge amount of debate in my family we problem solved a lot we talked a huge amount debate was a massive part of our life um, conversations talking about the world how things worked so I think even though I didn't know a lot about business I knew a huge amount about problem solving and learning and being interested in the world. And one of your kind of um, first business forays in New Zealand, a very successful foray, was in running the magazine Uno. Tell us how you came to be in Tauranga and uh, playing that place in the community. Well, that is such a funny story how we bought Uno. So I was living in Tauranga. I'd, I'd, been, I'd been here for quite a while. Um, my ex-husband's family live here, which is why we'd settled here. But um, in that time, we, we are not together anymore. And I was, I'd met Matt, my full and final upgrade. I made a superb <laughs> choice for second time round. Um, <laughs> Matt and I were leaving a friend's dad's funeral. And at the time, I was doing some freelance writing. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I didn't. I had no idea how I was going to engage as a working person in New Zealand. I hadn't worked for quite a while. I'd been bringing my children up. And I'd been doing some sort of freelance writing, which I was cobbling together myself. And then I'd done, a, I'd written an article for Uno because I knew the owner. And we, Matt and I were leaving this funeral. And I opened my phone and there was an email from Andy Martin, who owned and started Uno, and said, hey, Jen, you know, yeah, thanks for the feature, blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking of selling Uno. And I turned around to Matt and was like, oh, my God, let's buy it. And he was like, uh, yeah, I... Maybe. Anyway, we went down, we met Andy, and it was sort of falling to bits. It was a really well-loved brand in the Bay of Plenty, but he'd owned it with his father, and his father passed away a few years earlier, so it was he'd really like lost the love for it. So it was, it was really falling to bits. Luckily, because I knew absolutely fuck all about um, business, I had no concept of what you're buying a failing business meant. So I was like, yay, I'm so excited. So we bought this... Um, beautiful brand but uh, but like on its last legs and basically built it from the ground up we kind of walked in there was like there was nothing there was like no 
there was no office really. The the designer had left because she wanted. There was just nothing. There wasn't even a CRM. There was just nothing. Piles of paper and stuff like that. So. It was great because even though Matt and I had never worked in a magazine before, we got to build something that was exactly what the readers and the customers wanted, which um, which was essentially something beautiful to make them feel proud of where they lived. That was really the whole vision for it. And we grew it into this really successful business and sold it six years later, at a much huge multiple and kind of life-changing amount of money at the time. And in it we learned so much oh my god we learned so much not least we got these like crazy opportunities like um we met amazing people um because everyone that we interviewed basically excelled in their chosen field gives you an extraordinary understanding of what the economic picture of your region looks like because everybody wants to talk to you whether they own a charity a business um they're part of the government whatever and everybody wants to talk to you and tell you about their stuff so you have a real sense of like how the whole how the ecosystem works and then we got an opportunity um, to, I joined something called SHEO, which um, at the time I was looking for a kind of group of like-minded people. I was like, I want to run my business with kindness at the core. So I was looking around for people that had were operating their business with kindness. And it sounds quite normal now, but in 2015, that wasn't really a thing. That sort of sounded quite dumb. And then I found, I ended up going for lunch with Teresa Gatting, and she was there because she was the country leader of SHEO, which is a model which supports women-led businesses and she started talking about it and she used this phrase radical generosity quite a lot and I was like that's it I'm in and so that started a, a, a long and really fun friendship with T and it also started it actually started my path into investment but um which I'll come back to but the funny thing was that I started off Shio, I was putting money into this fund which basically gets loaned out to women-led businesses and they can pay the money back into the fund use the money to grow their business and then pay the back, money back in the fund on a zero percent loan and in doing this, I got really excited by it. I loved meeting the other women-led businesses in the group. And then Teresa asked me to MC the big kind of gala day uh, that they had to announce the businesses that had won the funding. And I went up and I emceed the gala day. And the founder of CEO, Vicky Saunders, this extraordinary kind of visionary woman, come over from Canada where she'd set it up. And when we were chatting at dinner afterwards, she said, oh, what do you do? And I told her about Uno and how much we love small businesses. And she said we should do a magazine, a Shia magazine. And I was like, oh, my God. So that's what we did. Matt and I, um, we went back to the UNO office and we basically designed and we delivered this global magazine that featured the biggest businesswomen in the world. And we ended up, we went to Los Angeles and shot Selma Blair at her house, Hollywood actress Selma Blair at her house, had her on the cover. At our launch in Toronto, we had Justin Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister. And... What that taught me was in New Zealand, there's no gatekeepers. You can get to be the owner of a glossy mag very cheaply and very quickly. And then you can move across into another country. So like you can go to Canada, which we did, and they see you at the same level as like these huge magazine owners. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting how you can do that. And I've seen that and replicated it lots of times in New Zealand where you can make take advantage of that there's no gatekeepers in New Zealand just ask lots of questions and meet people and then suddenly abroad you're seen as at the same level which really can catapult you into like a whole new level 
That's so cool. Um, love that, eh? We're a market leader in New Zealand. Like, we may be a size of a suburb in I your city. I didn't even say we're a market leader. I was like, the, yeah. I, was like I own a regional magazine yeah. in a tiny region on the bottom, a tiny island upon the world. Hi, my name is Jenny Rudd. I'm the editor of Uno magazine. Oh, great. You can be the editor of Shio magazine and get a Selma Blair's house. Done. Yeah, that's so cool. And, and tell us about that um, that path into investment. As, you know, Shio, and we, we, we've spoken to um, Teresa Gadding before and, um, and, and uh, about that project as, as well. Like that idea that the system isn't going to suddenly start funding women at or non-male leaders of businesses um, at decent rates. It's going to have to be a group of people coming to make a new system. It's so cool and so powerful. T- tell us about your journey into that and, and, and what the situation that you saw was. Well, you make a really good point, you know, that, that there's, there's lots of different groups of people who are underfunded. And I think the thing that we should all remember is that, you know, um, skills and and attributes, they're evenly distributed amongst all of us, but opportunity to utilize them isn't. And so traditionally, um, the groups of people who are underrepresented in terms of like being founders of big, huge companies um, are women and people of color, people with disabilities and people come from marginalized groups. There's, There's nothing new there. But what is really important to note is that all of those groups of people they bring such an exciting way of looking at the world from their perspective and they solve really big problems. So what that's why Shio came about because uh, Vicky saw that only of all venture capital that goes to startups, so startups are super important because they, uh, they're disruptive models. They're not like normal businesses where you, like my magazine, it's a well-worn business model. It serves a really particular need. Everybody knows that they work. You just follow the path of how the, all the other ones work and it works well. You can have some little differentiating factors, but essentially it's, it's like a, a trodden path. Startups not really in trodden path. They're usually um, coming up with an idea to do something really quite differently. So they've, it's really difficult, first of all, to get funding. Because if you go to a bank and go, hi, I've got this really cool idea and it doesn't exist already. Can I have a million dollars to build the tech to do it? They go, uh, probably not. Thanks so much. Um, but then that's where venture capital comes in because they're comfortable with the risk of going, yes, I understand that you need a million dollars, for example, upfront to build, say, the software before you can even have a single customer. They're comfortable with that level of risk. So um, venture capitalists, if you think about, well, who are the people of her VCs? They've got a lot of money. Um, they have to have had a lot of money because um, they've got to have that level of, be able afford to have that level of risk to lose it. And traditionally, because of the way our whole system has been built for the last 500 years, it's usually men who have that money because they've been the beneficiaries of the system. And so when people, when people on investment committees make investment decisions, yes, there's lots of, are you very good at this job? Are you the right team to do it? But essentially, it's really it's really difficult to overcome your primitive thing of, I want to invest in someone who looks like me. So that's why you, you often get the people, the startup owners who look like the investors. And so you have to do some real big things to kind of shoehorn new things in the early stage. And to be clear, I'm not a man hater. You know, uh, if, if it was all women that owe money, we'd have the same bloody problem. We'd have to do the same thing to help other people come in. Um, so that's a roundabout way of saying why it's important that we, that we kind of do something else at the beginning. So we can see that in America, PitchBook, which is this um, owner of a lot of data across the global capital markets, 
they did some analysis of how much venture capital was going to women-led businesses and male-led businesses. And they discovered if you add up all of the dollars of all of the venture capital that's been invested into startups in America, 80% of all of those dollars has gone to startups with male-only founding team. And what that means is the, the founder team are usually the people that own most of the business and that they've started the business. So 80% goes to male-only founded teams. 2%, a measly 2% goes to female-only founded teams. If you're a woman of colour, that is a naught point something, zero point something percent. So it's just, it's just out of balance. Um, so we know that that happens in America. Actually, we, we looked at, Teresa and I looked around in, in New Zealand for the same stats and we couldn't find any. So we've done it ourselves. We have done um, a huge piece of data across public and private markets. And I just would love to shoehorn in the people who also believe in what we're doing, which is Enterprise Angels, uh, which is the angel investing group in Tauranga that I'm on the board of. They have helped support this financially. Craig's Investment Partners, even though they're not in the startup world, they recognize that this is important. They've helped fund us and Global Women have also helped. But predominantly T and I have funded it ourselves. Yeah, that's so cool. And being able to demonstrate that, you know, the system of pattern recognition that's only ever had one pattern to draw from gets you into this position and then get the data around how things are cooked. What are the next steps? Like, how do you help to create, like, you create exemplars, like the organisations that you've been part of, and like people like Global Woman who, you know, um, create new systems. But how do you get the big system to change? That's a really good question. So this project that T and I have been doing to um, try and level the playing field in New Zealand, because if we, if you, there's lots of stats around the world that, that, that demonstrate why it's important. So the UN um, Organisation for Women, they showed that if we invested... Um, in, our, in female entrepreneurs at the same level as male counterparts, $32 billion would be added to the New Zealand economy. I mean, that's a massive amount. No one loses anything. We just gain everything. Um, we, when and gathering this data, I started looking around the world to go, well, who else is doing stuff like this? And um, it's so, this is another classic thing. I'm doing some. It's just me and T literally tinkering about on a computer trying to work out the data, and we get access to all these amazing people. So Alison Rose, who's the CEO of NatWest in the in the UK, she has, um, for the last few years, done something called the Rose Report, where she's trying to tackle exactly this issue. How do we get more female entrepreneurs? Um, another lady called Dame Helena Morrissey, who's like this... Jedi in the UK who's created a huge amount of global change around uh, women on boards. Um, she has said that she's happy to be introduced to us to support us with this. A guy called Angus Foote who runs CityWire, which is quite a similar outfit to PitchBook where they gather data. They did a big piece of data. They did run a big piece of data in the UK. They were looking at um, fund managers. So a fund is any, any like a big body of money that the public and anybody could put money in and it gets invested in in business and things to grow. So public, fu any any fund, what, what percentage of those funds are being managed by men and what percentage are being managed by women? Because that's important because they they're the ones that get to choose the businesses that get uh, invested in. Um, so they are essentially deciding the direction of our world if they're deciding the businesses that get invested in. Uh, in New Zealand, we have the worst percentage in the world of 3% of our fund managers are managed by women. Australia's 9%. United Arab Emirates, 25%. Brazil and Mexico and Portugal, they're all around the 9%. So we are really falling at the bottom. So I've been working with um, him, a lady called Rebecca from Launch Vic. So the, obviously, um, it's like the 
state-funded body that kind of supports startups in Victoria, in Australia. They're working with us. Everybody's really excited to see how we're going to do. Me and T have got a plan to change this landscape. We are in the process of working with some different bodies at the moment. We'll definitely have some news on it in the future. Awesome. We'll be back in a moment to talk changing the face of business. Dispute Buddy and What's Next with Jenny Rudd. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. And welcome back to Business is Boring, where we're with Jenny Rudd, investor, mentor and founder. Hey, so tell us about being an investor. How did you get involved with Enterprise Angels, who you just mentioned there? And who are they for, for anyone who might not know? So, um... Enterprise angels are a group of angel investors. So angel investors are usually people who've, uh, who want to invest in startups, but they might not be part of the venture capital world, like in a kind of structured way. They just want to put their own money directly into businesses. And, uh, there are a lot of angel groups around the country. Enterprise angels is one of the bigger ones in Tauranga. And what happens is you all come together in a, like a membership group. And then the CEO, a lady called Nina Lievra, who's absolutely amazing. We're very lucky to have her. She, um, her and her team get groups of startup founders to come and pitch on pitch nights. So we have a pitch night once a month. They come and pitch to us. And then um, the angel investors decide as a group whether they want to invest. And when they put all their, pull all their capital together, capital is money. When they pull it all together, they've got a lot more kind of power to support the founders. Um, so I... Um, joined Enterprise Angels because they're in Tauranga. I really like Nina. Um, she's really clever, super smart, and really passionate about the area. So then I joined the board about, oh, was about six months ago, I think now. That's been really exciting. And one of the things that I do as well um, in the ecosystem is Enterprise Angels and um, the Venture Center, which is like a startup ecosystem thing in Tauranga, they run something called the Angel Dropping Clinics. And so 
uh, founders who are kind of pre-capital raising. And just to be clear, capital raising means when you've got a startup, a small business, this this business that you want to grow, um, you often need money, capital to grow it. So capital raising is basically you going out to people going, um, do you want some Do you want some um, equity shares in my business in exchange for you giving me capital, money? That's basically what capital raising is, exchanging equity for cash. Um, so pre, pre-capital raising, lots of these young founders come into this group. And once a month, two or three of us angel investors sit down and just talk them through, oh, yeah, that, that's a good idea, or these are the things you need to think of, and so on. In doing these, you know, by the time I was doing this, I was probably about a year or so outside of selling Uno. And Matt and I had have had like the had, had the most amazing year. We sold Uno in November 2020, uh, had a like really great deal and really pleased. We were kind of really needed to create a lot of space to move into this next world of investing that we were doing a lot on. And we ended up having like an amazing time. We went to Miami to the Bitcoin conference and learned loads of these 25,000 other people and did all sorts of interesting stuff. Um, and learned a lot more about investing, got a lot more involved with founders and helping them and supporting them to solve problems. Started doing this angel dropping clinic. And by this time, I'd started to refine down of like, what kind of business do I really want to grow next? I recognized a few things. One of them was I wanted a cash flow positive business this time. <laughs> Magazines are not cash flow positive. They're, they're, they're quite a hard business model. Um, I want a cash flow positive. I definitely wanted something that was really highly profitable. So I probably wanted to use tech. I wanted to solve something that actually made life better for people um, less fortunate than me and and I don't mean that in like a cringy weird oh I'm such an amazing person kind of way but like genuinely if you're going to start a business what is the point unless you're going to make life better for people like there's just no point and there's so many people for whom you could make life a lot better just with small easy things so I kind of had that in my mind I want it to be simple I didn't want a lot of staff and I wanted to be um, highly profitable so I'd seen a few examples of this around and one one that I'd seen uh, which worked really well was when in the magazine industry we we used something called blink plan which is this super simple product which just showed the flat lay a flat lay is basically all the pages laid out so that you can upload thumbnails of your uh, magazine to it. it was a very simple product and it had global reach probably only had one or two people working it I think it was a guy called Jörg in Sweden or something and I was like that's the kind of model that I'd like but I mean that doesn't really help people per se but yeah it was good so I was looking at this stuff then I was running these angel well I was part I always have this tendency I was running the angel dropping clinics I was not running them I was part of them and um in came this amazing lady called Vicky Smith, and she came in and she said, oh, I've got this business called Sea Spray. She had um, built a business because she recognized that kiwi fruit orchards, when they sprayed their fruit, it was affecting their neighbors. So she set up a business that notified the neighbors when the kiwi fruit uh, crops were being sprayed. So she'd built this whole business on her own. She'd done the tech, done everything. She'd won Startup Weekend 2013. She'd run this business for seven years. It's really profitable. She was absolutely like total standout founder. I was totally gobsmacked and she really underplayed all of her achievements. Really cool Maori woman, 37 years old, like had built this thing on her own, um, three small children. And she, and I said, ah, oh, so are you here because you want some more help with that? She said, no, I've got this other idea called Dispute Buddy. And she'd slapped down this one pager on the table with a wireframe of what it could look like. And she said, oh, I've, I went through a dispute uh, with a landlord and 
uh, for the tenancy tribunal and I had to gather all of the comms that I'd had with my landlord across all these different platforms, email and text and so on. And it was an absolute nightmare. It took me tens, twenties hours and it was so difficult. And I think there could be a better way of doing it. And I literally had like this in my brain because I had uh, a couple of years earlier been through something similar and so I had had to do the same thing I'd spent about 40 hours gathering comms between whatsapp facebook all sorts of different things when you're under quite a lot of pressure it's very nerve-wracking you've got people all around you saying oh it's really difficult to make your children safe through court and it took me so long and I was like well I'm a magazine editor and I own my own business if this is hard for me how hard can it be for other people so Vicky and I have joined together and we have formed Dispute Buddy together. We did that last year and we have made fantastic headway because of all of uh, her amazing experience in um, running a tech startup already and my kind of broad experience across with other founders and so on. We've got a real deep understanding of how to build our product in the most lean way possible with zero um, investment um, and we're at the stage now where we've just built our prototype and we're about to test it. This week, actually, is our first round of testing. We have got the uh, for lawyers from the top Australian family law firm called London and Rogers in Melbourne who are working with us to supply a stream of family lawyers to test our prototype. So that's where we're at with that. Ah, that's so cool. And how's the journey going in as a founder after having been an investor and a mentor to people uh, and, and building a, a, a company like this from the ground up? It is so fun. I feel so deeply privileged and lucky to build a business with Vicky, who brings such a different way of thinking to me. Um, I've only ever worked with my husband before in business, who, and we've got Ross, real, real sets of group think, me and Matt. I, I love working with him. So, Vicky and I have been working together. It is so fun. The learnings that I've brought across, because uh, as well as sort of working with lots of founders, I'm a mentor on a program called Startmate, which is a um, startup accelerator underneath Blackbird Ventures, one of the biggest and the best in Australasia. So um, I'm a mentor across that as well. So I get to see a lot of founders and a lot of problems in early startups. And I I do a lot of work with founders to help them problem solve at the early stage. So to be able to bring all of that to our own is just I feel so fortunate. It's really exciting. It means that we've, we're able to grow it as well with no capital at the moment. We've spent very, very little money and we're very focused on growing the business um, to a stage where, as every, as every founder should, not get uh, investment at the beginning, but like only when they absolutely need to, when they've exhausted all other op opportunities and avenues. And be using tech to provide a very important help at a very difficult time. Yeah, so what we discovered, Vic and I went out and did a massive load of um, customer discovery interviews, and what we discovered is that our tech is going to disproportionately help the people with the most problems in this space. So in order to gather all of your comms for a dispute, which is a really important part of it, everyone's got to do it, to take it to a, in an affidavit if you've got a lawyer, or if you haven't got a lawyer or can't afford it, or if you're in a tribunal where you're not allowed a lawyer, um, you've got to gather it all yourself. If you've got money and tech skills and time, you are massively at an advantage to either resolving your dispute or even having, you know, just taking part in it. And what we know is that disputes, particularly between two close people, they can really bring you down and, and like your, it's a dire place to be for people. And if you can resolve your dispute quicker, you can move on with your life. And then that opens up so many opportunities for people. So even for people who are really privileged, our tech will really help them but it will really help much more people who don't have that privilege.
because access to justice should be equal to everyone. If you're an asshole, an angel, rich or poor, it should be the same. Like justice should be the same, but it's not. No, it really, <laughs> it really isn't, is it? And a couple of questions that we, we like to ask everyone on the podcast. What would your advice be? You know, you, you are involved in a lot of things that give advice to people. What is your advice for people who do see a problem like that and they want to build a tech business around it? How do you get started and what should you be doing? I think the first thing that you should do, if you've got zero experience, you don't really know how anything works, is go on and just Google some local, like a startup or like your your local ecosystem startup thing. So like in Tauranga, we've got something called the Venture Centre, which is run by Pascal. Every town around the country, you know, go to Priority One or your local economic development agency and say, I want to start this. I think I've got an idea. Can you help me go and talk to people? Talk to as many people as possible because I think the interesting thing in the startup space is there's access to a huge amount of advice and it's all free and it's really useful. You don't have to take any of it. You can just listen. That's what I would do. Yeah, love it. And as a final thought... What will success be for you? Ah, oh, success is probably exactly what's happening now. Having loads of fun, making a change, hanging out with my gorgeous husband and as much as possible with all my children and my mum and dad who now live here, they moved here in COVID, and really just de- genuinely making a change. I think everybody says that and it's uh, the people are probably rolling their eyes hearing me say it, but that's all we all want. We want to belong. We want to do good things. I want to leave the world net positive, not net negative. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your story today and can't wait to see what you make happen next. That's Jenny Rudd, founder, investor and mentor. Kia ora. So thank you to Jenny Rudd, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, T.I.H. Butler. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. Enohora. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.